LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, ultra-processed food is making us sick. Is there anything we can do about it? On a sticky spring morning in Fortaleza, a city on the northeastern coast of Brazil, Celine da Silva pushes a bright white handcart down a rutted dirt road. Celine is a door-to-door salesperson for Nestle. The world's largest food and beverage company relies on women like her to reach hundreds of thousands of customers in Brazil's poorest communities, places that don't have grocery stores, let alone supermarkets. Celine is proud of the products she sells because they're good for you. It says so right on the label, enriched with vitamins, packed with calcium. But in much smaller print, the labels admit that these products are also loaded with artificial sweeteners, synthetic emulsifiers, chemically engineered fats. And as Celine wheels her cart from house to house, dropping off cookies and Kit Kats and sugar-laden pudding cups, many of the adults and children who greet her are overweight. Celine has been struggling with weight problems herself. She's more than 200 pounds and was recently diagnosed with high blood pressure. She worries it may have something to do with her diet, which is full of Nestle products. But what choice does she have? This is the only food that's available. The door-to-door program is one flank in Nestle's assault on the Brazilian market. Another? For years, the firm sailed a floating grocery store stocked with several thousand boxes of pudding, cookies, and candy down tributaries of the Amazon River. Nestle takes you on board, the boat was called, as if they were promising to look after the well-being of the 800,000 people it served. But in its wake, the boat left adults and children as young as seven living in remote parts of the Amazon battling obesity and diabetes. Nestle may be the only food conglomerate with a floating grocery store, but in recent years, Coke, PepsiCo, and General Mills have invested billions in developing markets like Africa, India, and Mexico. As a result, places that a few decades ago were battling hunger are now battling obesity. More than a billion people worldwide are obese, and nearly three million of them die every year as a result. In Brazil, where Celine is raising three kids on a steady diet of Nestle products, the childhood obesity rate has increased 270% since 1980. And because many of those children fill large portions of their diet with junk food that's high in calories but low in nutrients, an alarming number of them are overweight but undernourished. That's the thing about packaged foods. For all the health claims they make, they aren't actually very healthy. In fact, they're causing us real harm. That's the conclusion I reached after reading Ultra Processed People, The Science Behind Food That Isn't Food, a stomach-churning new book by the British physician and broadcaster Chris Van Tulliken. The story he tells is as much about corporate greed as it is about nutrition. Chris, as you're about to hear, makes a surprising argument that the best way to tackle obesity and other diet-related health problems isn't to encourage everyone to eat healthier, it's 
to regulate big food businesses, much in the way that we regulated big tobacco, so they can no longer manufacture harmful products and market them as fun and healthy. But that doesn't mean we should entirely discount the negative health consequences of eating this stuff every day. Ultra-processed foods, or UPFs, which are made from manufactured ingredients, artificial sweeteners, colorings, starches, stabilizers, and fats, have been linked to numerous health problems. Hypertension, cancer, premature death. And we can't stop eating them because they're engineered to be addictive. Chris knows firsthand just how addictive they can be, and not just because he's got a medical degree from Oxford and a PhD in molecular virology, He knows how addictive they can be because as part of his research for the book, he enrolled in a study that had him consume 80% of his calories from UPFs. We're gonna talk about how that month-long experiment changed his body as well as his brain's addiction reward pathways. But even if you haven't volunteered for a study, Chris says we are all unwitting participants in a large-scale experiment testing the effects of eating ultra-processed food at scale. The verdict is in and the health consequences are disastrous. You probably make some efforts to eat a healthy diet. I do my best. I have certainly improved over time, but I do have a weakness for the occasional Wendy's Baconator, KFC's popcorn chicken, order in Chinese. I've been known to mop up the juice of a steak with fries now and then. There are a lot of mixed messages out there about what food we should and shouldn't eat. We know ultra-processed food that comes in bright packaging is generally a bad idea, but what exactly is the bad stuff and how bad is it? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Chris Van Tulliken, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks for having me. Chris, I have to admit that when I first saw your book, my initial thought was, we know this. We, we all know ultra-processed food is bad for us. But when I dug in deeper, I found out that the argument you're making goes a few steps further than at least where I was. You say that we now have overwhelming evidence that all diet-related disease is caused by ultra-processed food. How do we know this? So we've got uh, several dozen prospective epidemiological studies, we've got a clinical trial, and we've got a whole wealth of lab data, all of which show the same thing. And they point to ultra-processed foods not just being a, a really significant driver of weight gain, and I would say they are the primary cause of pandemic obesity, but they also seem to cause inflammatory disease like Crohn's disease, metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart attack, strokes, mental health problems, anxiety, depression, cancers specifically, but particularly breast cancer and bowel cancer, as well as dementia and early death from all causes. So they they really cause the same suite of diseases that tobacco products cause. 
And meanwhile, ultra-processed foods account for, you say, 60% of the typical adult diet. Is that right? And, and I think even more of, of what children are eating. In fact, it's 60% of the average adult diet in the US and the UK. And the studies probably underestimate it. And that's, that's by calories. So it's 60% of our calories come from ultra-processed products. A typical diet for a North American teenager or kid in the UK might be as many as 80 or 90% of their calories. And essentially, wow. the more disadvantaged the group you're from, the more marginalized your community, the more likely you are to get more of your calories from ultra-processed food. So this is now our national diet. You also say that we're, we end up both overfed and, in some cases, malnourished. One, one data point that really astonished me is I think you said that Americans used to be taller on average than the Dutch. Mm -hmm. But today, the Dutch are on average five centimeters taller than Americans. Do you think that's because of ultra-processed foods? I mean, there's an argument that we can both at the same time get fatter and be more stunted in terms of our height. The data is really, really clear on this, that obesity and uh, stunting go hand in hand. So both the US and the UK, we have some of the, our, our children particularly, are some of the shortest of any developed countries, and it's the children who live with obesity who are the very shortest. And the difference between children in the US and the UK and their Scandinavian or Northern European counterparts is enormous. You know, it's not like we have to use some laser measuring device. If you lined up a class of US school children compared with, uh, you know, kids from Sweden, Denmark, Holland of the same age, it's a couple of inches at a very young age. It's very remarkable. So this, this even if my book, leans probably toward government regulation. It is a book, I think, mm -hmm. that's, I hope, that's quite progressive. But even if you're of a, a more sort of hawkish mentality and you're more nationalist, if you're concerned about your country's ability to compete at sport or in the military, if I were <laughs> right, running an army, right. I'd be like, oh my goodness. So I think it would be useful to define for our listeners what exactly ultra-processed food is. If we try to distinguish between food processed food and ultra-processed food, where, where do you draw those lines? The definition of ultra-processed food runs to a couple of pages, but it boils down to if it's wrapped in plastic and it has some additive that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen, like a stabilizer or a xanthan gum or an artificial sweetener um, or artificial flavoring uh, or even natural flavoring, then it is an ultra-processed food. And Another good working definition is if there's a health claim on the pack, like high fiber, you know, high in protein, vitamin enriched, those foods are almost always ultra processed as well. So at the other end of the spectrum, we've got whole food. So that's food you can pull off a tree, you know, an apple, an oyster, um, you know, a piece of steak is minimally processed. There's very little in our diet that we can eat absolutely whole and unprocessed. It's a bit of fruit, a few mushrooms, and, and a bit of shellfish. Then there's processed food. So humans have been processing food for well over a million years. We are the only animals that have to process food for our diet. So we've extended our digestive tract out of our bodies and into our kitchens. And so we are dependent on food processing. Our guts and teeth and jaws are way smaller than any other animal, uh, any other mammal of our size. And that's because we pre-digest our food. So for, for millennia, mainly female 
domestic scientists have been grinding and chopping and smoking and salting and fermenting and extracting and doing all this wonderful stuff that has led to um, the human diet. So processed food is not associated with diet-related disease for the most part. So if, if we think about milk, you can drink milk out of the cow. You shouldn't because you'll get brucellosis, but you can. You can process it into cheese or butter, or you can have ultra-processed versions where you know, a cheese spread, which is full of uh, citrates and flavorings, would be ultra-processed mm -hmm, cheese. Mm -hmm. Or margarine, entirely synthetic, that would be an ultra-processed version of butter. So that, that's the basic spectrum. And all the evidence shows that it's the ultra-processed food that, that leads to the disease. Right. And, and as you've said here, we've been looking for ways to preserve food and make, and I guess make food easier to digest for hundreds right. of thousands of years, millions of years. And arguably, I would think some of those things like smoking and curing meats is maybe not necessarily great for you. Uh, massive amounts of salt and, and lots of carcinogenic smoke, but it's not nearly as bad as all the additives that we're putting in today. Would that, would that be accurate? I think that's right. Traditional food that's made by people who love us to nourish us, and it's not mm, made yeah. to be addictive and to extract money from us, broadly is associated with good health. Now, if you go and eat nothing but smoked fish or certain traditionally pickled foods, there are particular diet-related diseases associated with those foods. But as a broad approximation, almost every traditional diet that we've ever studied is associated with good health and long life. And that's those diets are really varied. So we can look at mm -hmm, mm -hmm. human diets from the high Arctic that are, are very high in protein and fat from sea mammals, or we can look at a Mediterranean diet, or we can go to East Asia, we can look at a South Asian diet. All of those diets seem to be associated with, with good health. What doesn't seem possible is there is no one molecule or substance that we've ever been able to extract from any of those diets that brings a health benefit. So Walnuts seem to be good for us, but you can't extract the thing from a walnut that is good for you. They, it seems like you have to eat the whole walnut. Similarly, oily fish, really good for people. But when you extract fish oils, they don't seem to have any beneficial effect in healthy people. So the more you break food down into its component parts, yes, the less yes. health it seems to give. You know, if you eat a whole piece of chicken, it's very different in terms of how your body manipulates it and absorbs it the effects it has on your body than when it's been pulverized and mechanically recovered and turned into a chicken nugget. So why, Chris, have we done this to our food system? How, why has this happened? I mean, so, so obviously part of the explanation is that it's been practical to extend shelf life and you know, preservatives and help us in transporting foods and making foods available. But it seems that our food industrial complex has had other motives as well, right? Trying to kind of delight us with foods that we can't stop eating. How, how did we get here? I think one of the things that you have to understand is that we think of this, you know, you talk about a food system, a food supply system, and that's the wrong way of thinking about it. It's really mm -hmm. an inverted money supply system. So the research I now do, I'm an infectious diseases clinician, but I study how diet affects particularly low-income populations. And my main interest mm -hmm. is in how corporate incentives and how conflicts of interest affect human health. But more and more, I'm doing economic research. So I'm teamed up with economists, and we're looking at the extent to which the food system is motivated by money. And this may sound yeah. like a rather banal point, because of course, these are all companies and they make money. But the food companies 
tell us a story, that they also are concerned for our health, that they do this thing called stakeholder capitalism, where yes, of course, they're concerned a little bit about the shareholders, but they also deeply care about the planet, about plastic pollution, about our health, about public health, about the environment. And if you go on the websites of any food company that you can look at, I mean, if you go on the website of the biggest plastic polluting companies in the world, any of the, the top three, I won't, I won't name them, they're easy enough to find. They're all food companies, they're soft drink companies. They would appear to be charities dedicated to removing plastic from the planet. You know, that's, that's the message they're selling us. So we are using economic indicators to try and prove that these are lies. They have no interest in the environment. They have no interest in our health. We can show that institutional investors vote down public health proposals. And we can mm -hmm. show that the companies do these things like share buybacks, where they, instead of investing in foods that might be healthier and uh, better for us, and they could sell them at a cheaper price, they simply buy back shares in order to generate equity value for their owners. So the food companies behave much more and more like banks who do a little bit of food. And once you understand their obligations to deliver value to their owners, it becomes kind of clear why our food is addictive. I mean, there are enough calories in the United States to feed everyone many times over. The only way you can generate this growth for your institutional investors, if you're a food company, is to create addictive products that people consume to excess. Once you understand the money incentive, you understand why we have the food we have. I'm interested, Chris, in exploring how it is that these companies succeed in delivering food that we can't stop eating. And so I'm, I'm going to make a personal sacrifice right now, Chris, and I have in front of me a can of Pringles potato oh. chips, which I've always loved. And, I, and, and so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw myself in harm's way, Chris, and here I'm cracking it open. There's a little mustache, charming mustachioed fellow on the top who seems very So the ultra-processing, you're already engaging with ultra processing. The second you got the packet out with the lurid colors and the man on it yes. and the, the friendly pop, all of it is part of the processing that leads you to consume to excess. So you're already in a sense eating the food. Indeed, I feel that way. I, I'm salivating and now I have this beautiful, and of course, Pringles as we know are kind of miraculous, right? I mean, that there's this lovely way that they each, they each, each crisp just fits into the next one in this way. They're, they're sort of spooning each other. They're congruent with the human tongue. So if you extend your tongue, it makes this hyperbolic paraboloid shape of the Pringle. And so the Pringle, if you place it whole on your tongue, it will come into contact with almost every part of your tongue. And that's, that's part of the sensory delight. Hyperbolic paraboloid. I've been I've been enjoying the hyperbolic paraboloid without realizing it for years. Okay, here we go. Oh my gosh, Chris. What flavor are you having? It's cheddar cheese, which is you know not as wild as some of the options, but yeah, it really is um, delightful. And I see that we have here on the ingredients list. Cheddar cheese, blue cheese, onion powder, buttermilk, paprika and turmeric extract color, starches and coconut oil. But what I know from reading your book is that my brain is receiving a signal right now as I absorb this beautiful Pringle on my tongue that there are various nutrients coming to my body. But as it happens, the signal is a lie. That's right. So 
you talked about salivating as you opened it. And yeah. people, I think, forget that eating is a complex business. We start eating with our noses and our eyes. And even when we come home and food is cooking or we open the Pringles, when our first sort of sensory experience starts to prepare our body very specifically to receive nutrition. So when you put the food in your mouth, by now you're quite committed to swallowing it. So your body has to get ready. And so you have sweet, bitter, sour, and salt tastes, not just for fun, partly to identify food, to make sure it's safe, but to prepare your body. So sweet taste will generally cause a pre-insulin spike. So before the sugar arrives in the gut, you've already raised a little bit of insulin to get ready. If you put a sweet taste from an artificial sweetener in your mouth and the sugar never arrives, we think that's one of the reasons that artificially sweetened drinks then drive you to eat more. Now, in the case of the Pringles, I'm guessing if you look at that ingredients list, there will be something called either ribonucleotides or guanolate, inosinate, or glutamate, or flavor enhancers. It might just be under flavoring. Is any of that on there? Yes, yes. I, I see disodium, guanolate, malodextrin, mono and diglycerides, monosodium glutamate, disodium inosinate. Yeah, do, do you know yeah. what all those things are? You've got the, the triad there. So you've got inosinate, guanolate, and glutamate. And these are amino acids. They occur in nature, but they're used there as flavor enhancers. So they create this savory unami taste. And when you put the three of them together, you get this intense synergistic unami. So it's even more meaty and savory than, than MSG. And people will sort of recognize MSG from it's in so many different products. And so what those three molecules in naturally occurring foods signal is easy to digest protein. So each of them is found in slightly different things, but they're, they're found in mushrooms, in dried fish, in savory uh, fermented meats, in lots of fermented plants. And so what your body is expecting when it gets that little trio of molecules is that you will be receiving a rich ramen broth or some dried mushrooms or some fermented vegetables, something really rich and proteinaceous and easy to digest. Now, all that's going to arrive in your gut is a sad little bolus of potato starch. I mean, it won't even all be potato starch, I would guess. I, I don't know the US ingredient sprinkles list with quite such familiarity, but there'll probably be some corn starch or some rice starch in there too. All those starches are more or less biochemically identical, and they put them on because the commodity price of corn, soy, rice, wheat, potato will change. And so it allows them some flexibility when, when the rice starch is expensive because there's some export problem or the, the wheat from Ukraine is expensive. It allows you just to, to mess around with the ingredients, but they're all more or less the same. Anyway, all that are going to arrive in your gut is starch. It'll quickly become sugar. And so the, the signal you've got in your mouth is a kind of nutritional lie. And we see this with artificial sweeteners. We see it with mm -hmm. um, the flavor enhancers and we see it with the gums as well. So a lot of the, the you'll see it on yogurts, on ice cream, they contain xanthan gum, guar gum, locust bean gums. Uh, in the mayonnaises, the low-fat mayonnaises, they're, they're full of these gums. They're slimy like oils in the mouth, so they're quite good fat substitutes. But we think that your mouth is able to detect fats and oils. So again, if you're getting a fatty feeling in the mouth, but fat doesn't arrive, you get this kind of nutritional confusion. So we've got 
a certain amount of animal data on this. The thing we understand most is the artificial sweeteners. We barely understand any of this except that the evolutionary biology tells us that telling lies to our mouth seems to be a bad idea. And the population data shows that when we do this, those often low-fat products don't cause us to lose weight. So the low-fat yogurts and ice creams with all the gums, the mayonnaises, they're not associated with weight loss. The suspicion here is that we're mentally anticipating nutrients to arrive that don't arrive. So that that can trigger overeating. Like we, we, we're unsatisfied and want, want more of it. So it makes the foods potentially more addictive. But you also point out that there's a separate problem here, which is that we're subverting our evolved system for seeking out the nutrition that our bodies require, right? And actually, there's a wonderful example of this or, or support for this in this study done in the 20s by, I think it was by Clara Davis with babies. Yeah. Do you want, to, you want to share that? Clara Davis was an incredible woman. She was a pediatrician working um, in Canada and the States in the 20s. And she set up a, a, a laboratory with children who were abandoned by their mothers. And this, it sounds a little bit ethically dubious, but in fact, she ends up adopting some of the kids. And she really, I think, adored the kids. Her question was, so she dealt with all these eating disorders where kids are eating more and more processed food. They're eating tanned goods and powdered gravy, and they're becoming fussier and fussier. And her question was, if I give these infants, they're kind of one and a half to three years old, unfettered access to about 34 different types of foods, so there were things you'd expect like carrots and rice and porridge and milk and yogurt. And then there were some weird things like bone marrow and liver. There's some awful cod liver oil. Um, uh, but there's a very, very wide range of different products. If the kids have access to these products and they get no instruction and they're not deliberately fed any of them, can they maintain nutritional balance? And the most powerful story was a kid called Earl who turned up at about one and a half and he had rickets, so he had vitamin D deficiency. He was really sick and his bones were bendy and rubbery. And he enthusiastically drank the only edible source of vitamin D that you could get at the time, which was the cod liver oil. And every day he'd drink a big glass of it until his rickets were cured. And they did this, you can measure the cure on x-ray. And once his rickets were cured, he refused the cod liver oil and never ate any of it again. And the kids without rickets never drank any. So that tells us two things. First of all, cod liver oil is disgusting if you don't have rickets, if you don't need all the stuff that's in it. And most of us don't need it because our diets are you know, we're, we're, they're fairly nutritionally complete for the, for the big vitamins. Um, but also that something in Earl, which we still have no idea about, was able to guide him to the food. Uh, and his body was able, on first tasting it, all the kids experimented with all the foods. They all ate almost all of the foods. But when he first tasted the cod liver oil, something in his body said, yes, you need something in this. So we have this. Now, Clara Davis was really clear that this didn't mean you could just let kids eat whatever they want. If they're surrounded by high fat, high salt, sugar foods, they will tend to prefer those, especially if they've been engineered. This points to, I mean, so it's extraordinary that we have this, this, this capability to, to, to smell and taste, you know, foods that, that our bodies need and we, and, and we select for those. And so when we take you know, 60, 70% of the foods we consume and effectively remove the natural flavors and then artificially flavor them, create smells and tastes that are 
totally uncorrelated with the nutritional value of what we're eating. This is a very dangerous, large-scale experiment that, as you say, none of us volunteered to be uh, participants in this experiment, and yet here we are. The invitation in my book is, I, I hope there is almost no advice in the book, but there, there is this invitation at the beginning where if you feel addicted to these foods, my suggestion is not that you stop. It's that you really eat enthusiastically while you read, that you engage with this food. Because you yeah. talked about this, the Pringle, it, almost with a kind of reverence yeah. when you're eating it. In fact, this food does not stand up to inspection. So when you talk about the complexity of flavors, in fact, there's a very small number of flavors in that Pringle. It's nowhere near as complicated as, you know, something, you know, you might have had made by someone who loved you. So the food doesn't stand up to inspection. And when you really try and taste it and explore the flavors and the textures, there's very little there. And by the end of the book, a lot of people simply find that the food has become disgusting and they, they no longer want to eat it. When we come back, Chris describes his unsavory experience eating a diet composed almost entirely of ultra-processed foods. That's right after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Welcome back to the show. I've been speaking with Chris Van Tulliken, author of the new book, Ultra Processed People, The Science Behind Food That Isn't Food. As part of his research, Chris subjected himself to a diet where 80% of his calories came from ultra-processed foods, or UPFs. I asked him to tell me what that experience was like. It was an experiment I did with colleagues at, at University College London, where I'm, I'm an associate professor, and we did it to gather pilot data for a big clinical trial that we're now doing. So we did it very rigorously. And it wasn't an extreme diet. It was a diet where 80% of my calories came from ultra-processed food. And this is a typical diet for a North American or a, or a British teenager. So it was easy to do. It should have been enjoyable. But because I was also speaking to all these scientists who are now colleagues, I mean, we're writing a big academic series on UPF for the Lancet Medical Journal. Um, 
I was talking to them, designing experiments, trying to write my book. Um, and one of them particularly, Fernanda Rauba, she's on the team in Brazil that came up with the definition. She said to me, we were having this conversation about designing an experiment and I was talking about the food and she kept going, it's not food, Chris. It's an industrially produced edible substance. You must stop calling it food. And it was at the time, it was quite annoying. I was trying to have a normal conversation. And this was like a, a tick almost. At the end of the conversation, I hung up, went to eat a dinner of fried chicken and was not able to finish the dinner. And she had somehow flicked this switch in my brain and made it disgusting. And we know that the things we love or that we're obsessed or addicted to those parts of the brain that deal with that are very close to the parts of the brain that deal with disgust. It's the same neurotransmitters, it's the same Interesting. Um, bits. And so many people will have this experience with human beings where you can be infatuated with someone mm, and then yeah. suddenly disgusted with them. We, I mean, perhaps not mm. everyone, but other people may recognize yeah. that. It happens with cigarettes, it can happen with booze, and it can happen with food. So that's kind of the gift I want to give to the reader if I can, is to, is to leave them not wanting the food. Because at the moment, I think if you crave this food, it is so omnipresent, it's so everywhere that resisting it is, for many people, myself included, really impossible unless you simply mm. stop wanting it. And, and for how many weeks did you eat nothing but UPFs and, and, what, and how much weight did you gain? How did that impact you? So there were three effects. I gained so much weight in the four weeks I did the experiment for, and I wasn't force feeding myself. This wasn't Morgan Spurlock supersized me. I was just eating to appetite. I gained so much weight that I would have doubled my body weight in a year if I'd kept eating it. So wow. I gained over six kilos in a month. And then I had a brain scan, which showed very significant changes in the connectivity between the habit automatic behavior bits of the brain at the back of the skull, the cerebellum, and the addiction reward bits in the middle. So we, th these, this was a really good scan. I know it, it's, it's a study where, of one person, but I did this with, with colleagues who are very expert at our National Neurology Hospital, and, and the changes were very robust, and they, they stayed. So what this food is doing to kids who eat it from birth uh, all the way through their development, we really don't know, except the kind of evidence is all around us that we have an epidemic of uh, attention deficit disorder, mental health problems, anxiety. I mean, I, I think we don't have to look too far beyond the food to explain these problems. And the, the third effect was that we measured my gut hormone response to a meal. And at the end of the diet, when I ate a standardized meal of, I think it was 1200 calories, my hunger hormones remained sky high. So wow. this is food that is, it's not just when you eat the food itself that it's interfering with your ability to feel satisfied. It seems to long-term affect that thermostat that says, now you should stop eating. And I think loads of people listening to this will recognize in themselves that disordered thinking where they, they know midway down the tube of Pringles that they're not really enjoying them anymore. They have stopped liking them and yet they still want them. and and they are unable to stop eating them. And, and the book, I hope, makes an argument that will move us away from this sort of personal responsibility idea that, you know, people just need more willpower. I think there's very, I try and present very strong evidence in the book that it really isn't to do with personal willpower. Well, I've had three Pringles so far, and I'm not yet 
not enjoying them. Keep eating while we <laughs> But talk. I'm going to keep eating. I'm going to keep eating because I'll talk. I'll, I'll report back. This is when your parents catch you smoking, you know, as a young teen and you're forced to smoke the whole pack. That's that's what I want to do to Yes, you. yes. Well, that's that. I, I, I like that strategy. I'd love, love to get to that uh, a little later. But so, so the mechanism through which ultra-processed foods are having these really terrible long-term impacts on our health We've talked about overeating. You also write about evidence that that they have a profoundly negative impact on our microbiome. Is this speculative or is there pretty clear evidence of this? There's pretty good evidence of this. I mean, the microbiome is incredibly hard to study because it contains hundreds, possibly thousands of individual species of bacteria, each of them secreting many, many different molecules. The broad thing that we understand is that the microbiome is absolutely essential, not just for healthy life, but for life. It's the biggest immune organ in the body. It helps us digest our food. And essentially, the way it works in a very simple term is when you eat fiber, um, the fiber is, you can't digest the fiber. The bacteria in you do digest the fiber, and they turn it into these molecules called short-chain fatty acids. And they seem to have really beneficial effects on your gut, on your brain, and on your heart. And so nourishing the right bacteria inside you is really important. The bugs also keep invaders away, and they modulate the local immune system. We know that several things about ultra-processed foods seem to really, really damage the microbiome. The evidence around this is good. These are papers published in Cell, in Science, and in Nature. You know, this isn't, these aren't small, irrelevant studies. These are, these are big, important studies. The molecules I think that I really try and avoid now are the non-nutritive sweeteners. We call them artificial sweeteners, but some of them are also branded as natural, like I think Splenda is a natural one, or the, the steviol glycosides. It, it, it doesn't matter. They, they generally all seem to have the same effect, which is that many of them cause significant modifications to the microbiome. So the, the artificial sweeteners affect the microbiome, and the emulsifiers which are in almost everything from the soft drinks to the bread to the candy and you know uh, emulsifiers are, are totally ubiquitous in our diet. And these are molecules that really act like detergents. So in nature, an egg yolk is a great natural emulsifier. It allows you to make a mayonnaise and it binds the vinegar in the mayonnaise to the mm. fat in the mayonnaise. And, and that's, that's what emulsifiers do. They link fat and water. In your body, when you eat these synthetic emulsifiers that we find in art artificial food, they seem to act like detergents in the gut, and they scrub out the gut, they thin the mucus, and they, they remove lots of the friendly bugs, which can then be replaced by bugs that we don't have such a good relationship with. And so when you start mucking around with the microbiome, you get all kinds of problems. And this is, we don't understand all the mechanisms. It seems like it drives obesity. It seems like it's hugely important in inflammatory bowel disease, which we are seeing an epidemic of around the world. Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, you know, rates are skyrocketing. And then cancers, bowel cancers, and liver cancer, because the liver is where all the blood from the gut drains. So if you inflame the lining of the gut by scrubbing it out with emulsifiers in your soft drinks, and your bread, dead bacteria from the gut leak into the liver. There they cause inflammation, which sets up a cycle that ultimately seems to be carcinogenic. And we have more and more evidence about that. So I'm cautious with this because the effects I think we're increasingly sure are causal. So we are, mm -hmm. we are, we have growing certainty. I'm, I never like to say prove because I'm a, a scientist. 
But for clarity, I believe, and I think many people also believe, that ultra-processed food causes cancer, it causes dementia, it causes heart attacks and strokes. The mechanisms are very plausible, but we need to do more research on them. But we knew that smoking caused lung cancer long before we understood the exact molecular details of how carcinogenic it was. So the, the big question is much less sort of how does it do it than does it do it? I like the argument that I, I first heard Michael Pollan make uh, some 15 plus years ago in, in Omnivorous Dilemma, in which he, he basically said, it's appropriate for us to be humble about how little we know about nutrition. And Tim Spector also made this made this case in our conversation, saying saying that you know a clove of garlic has something like o- over two thousand chemicals mm. in it, right? And we're we're 20, starting oh, twenty thousand. Thank you, yeah. over twenty thousand. Right. So it's just the complexity of our nutritional systems is just staggering. And we had you know early in the last century we started to figure out about vitamins, and we were like, oh, vitamins. So we're now all going to take vitamin supplements, and which it seems there's some evidence they do more harm than good. More recently, we're learning about you know antioxidants and flavonoids, and now about the microbiome. But it seems necessary to be humble about how complex the system yes. is. And if there's one thing that we can know for certain, it's that we co-evolved with plants and animals right. over millions of years. We've right. been eating them for millions of years, and that's a system that has worked for a very, very long time. And and so the the, the default assumption should be. Let's do what we evolved to do, and let's continue to piece together the puzzle of how this wildly complex nutritional system works. I think that's a a really useful perspective. You know, I, I also think we need to change the price of things because it's easy for, I suspect, people like you and certainly people like me and people like Michael Pollan to, we have the luxury of time and money. We probably live in a place where we can buy real food. This food is not affordable or available for most people. And so the urging everyone to eat like their great-great-grandparents did is, in health terms, exactly right. But it is an impossibility, and it's a terrifying impossibility for communities that can't access that food. So I think part of it is changing the structure of our world so that real, good, nutritious food is affordable, is available, and is culturally normal. And yes. limiting the marketing of ultra-processed food feels like the best place to start. Yeah. Well, um, I have quite a few friends who enjoy Diet Coke. And um, I, I was amused by uh, your, your section on Donald Trump and his relationship with Diet Coke. We have a clip here from late night talk show host James Corden. President Donald Trump drinks, and this is true, apparently he drinks 12 cans of Diet Coke a day. Yeah. <laughs> The President of the United States, he spends four to eight hours watching TV and five to ten hours walking back and forth to the bathroom, I imagine. (laughs) It's okay. In October 2012, Trump tweeted, I have never seen a thin person drinking Diet Coke. And the next day he added, the more Diet Coke, Diet Pepsi, et cetera, that you drink, the more weight you gain, question mark. Right, so yeah, he's actually in, in in real time in public thinking yeah. through this this sort of observation that he's made that like like looking around all the all the people I see drinking diet beverages are overweight, uh, and he seems to have put his finger on part of the problem. I mean, the guy's a genius. He he completely identified and managed to put it all in less than forty four <laughs> characters. Um, yeah. The issue with diet drinks they aren't associated with weight loss. 
There are a small number of studies which show they are that are all funded by the soft drink industry, but all the independent evidence shows they have no effect. In the UK, we brought in this thing called the soft drinks industry levy. So we made sugar very high tax. So all of our soft drinks now, almost without exception, contain these artificial sweeteners. And we've started to do science. Since we brought in the ban on sugar, it's, it's an effective ban because it's so expensive now, um, have kids lost weight? And we know that we've taken um, 45 million pounds worth of sugar out of their diet. And yet, rates of obesity have continued to climb in most of the groups. So the argument against this reformulation where you make ultra-processed food healthier is the most powerful argument against it is the artificial sweetness because it is the perfect reformulation. Most people can't tell the difference between the sweetness and the sugar. They're really good now. They don't leave aftertastes. Mm -hmm, they have mm -hmm. zero calories. It should be perfect. And yet, because our bodies are complex, because we've evolved to eat sugar, not weird sweet things with no calories, they confuse us, they seem to cause metabolic damage, they damage the microbiome, and they don't cause us to lose weight. And that, that should be this huge signal that the nutritional community has just got our way of thinking about the way humans eat food really severely wrong. The conventional assumption that I've always had is that, you know, people have said for years and years that, oh, well, you know, we evolved to enjoy sh the taste of sugar, fat, and salt. But in our in our evolutionary environment, there just weren't we we couldn't get massive quantities. We're now in environments where we can we can eat whole foods that contain massive amounts of sugar, fat, and salt, and gain weight and negatively impact our health. Do we have clarity that the problem is the processing and the additives, and not simply eating too much sugar, fat, and salt? Okay, so there are three lines of evidence. First of all, we have a clinical trial conducted at the National Institutes of Health by a guy called Kevin Hall, who's arguably one of the world's leading nutritional scientists. And he randomized volunteers for two weeks onto either an ultra-processed or an unprocessed diet, and then he swapped the group around. So everyone had more food than they can possibly eat. Everyone had access to 5,000 calories. The diets were identical in fat, salt, sugar, and fiber. And the people on the ultra-processed diet ate 500 calories more per day than the people on the unprocessed diet. But really importantly, both diets were rated as equally delicious. So it wasn't that the food was more palatable. And so that's one really important piece of evidence. That chimes with all this epidemiology because the big problem for all the scientists asking the population questions and saying, is ultra-processed food associated with heart attacks or weight gain? If you're doing a population study. One of the things is, are you just studying fatty, salty, sugary food, and you're confusing your causes and effects, and you've got all these uh, confounding factors in there. So almost all the studies control, they put statistical controls in for fat, salt, sugar, and fiber, and dietary pattern, and lots of other things. And they demonstrate really clearly that the effect remains absolutely the same in significance and magnitude when you make those statistical adjustments. So the processing is important. And uh, just then the third line of evidence is more anecdotal, which is that we've had abundant fat and sugar in our diets for a very, very long time. Even in remote tribal communities, many communities get, uh, I mean, I, I've lived in tribal communities and, and certainly studied, um, there's a huge amount of data on tribal communities that get you know, 40% of their calories from honey, which is a high fructose corn wow. syrup. Biochemically, they're indistinguishable and very low rates of obesity. All that said, there has been human obesity throughout 
history going back to the ancient Egyptians and almost certainly beyond. There have been adults, um, you know, men of my age, I'm in my mid 40s, uh, who put on weight eating delicious, good whole food. That has been possible for a long time. So there's this small amount of obesity that is just associated with people who like to eat having access to lots of tasty food. In children, rates of obesity without access to UPF are almost non-existent. And we know this from really good data from Brazil, where the only thing in some communities that, and I've worked in uh, Brazil and I've been to these communities where um, food companies floated a supermarket up the Amazon, going to the most remote communities in Brazil and bringing them, you know, ice cream and Kit Kats and chocolate products. And within a few years, you know, obesity ballooned in all these places. And the only thing that had changed was the ultra processing in their diet. Yeah, that, that, that section really crushed me. That was just awful. Yeah, it was, it, it, that was one of the, as a physician, you don't get, I don't normally, I, I try not to get too involved in the very tragic life of some of my patients, but I was really moved to tears several times on, on that trip um, up the Pará because these are communities with no ability to treat tooth decay, with no understanding of public health, with no medicines for childhood diabetes. I mean, childhood diabetes should be, it shouldn't exist, type two diabetes shouldn't exist anywhere on earth. And you go to these quite remote places in Brazil and you would, you know, there were, there were several children in small towns with type two diabetes. I mean, just, you know, a situation that's inconceivable without ultra processed food. And how, how about the claim that the real issue is is exercise, right? Some some have said that if you look at our increasingly sedentary lifestyles, the reduction in energy expenditure of a typical American in the last 50 years is correlated with the weight gain. Yeah. It seems really intuitively obvious to everyone that if we're going to talk about obesity, that at least part of the discussion has to be how sedentary we all are, that we've stopped doing manual labor and we sit around watching TV all day. And so the question for me writing my book was, to what extent, if I'm going to talk about a pandemic of obesity, should I be talking about inactivity and how much am I dealing with the whole problem? And so how to tell this story? There are quite a large number of papers that promote the idea that if you do less, you tend to weigh more. And they're big epidemiological studies, uh, and they're quite convincing when you read them. There is a weird thing that when we actually measure how many calories people are expending, it turns out that we're not expending any fewer calories per day at the moment than we were many years ago. And moreover, if we go to quite remote communities of people, so the, the, the best study was done in the Hadza group of hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, if you go and measure how many calories a Hadza man of my age and, and weight and, and, and build burns in a day, we burn the same number of calories, even though I mainly sit at a desk or work in a hospital. So the amount of calories you burn in a day seems to me primarily de dependent on your body composition, how, how tall and heavy and fat you are, uh, your age and your sex. And that's what determines it. So this is a really, really, really counterintuitive finding, and it is backed mm -hmm. up by a huge amount of data. And the way to explain it is this, that Rufus, you and I basically burn the same number of calories every day, regardless of whether we're pretty active during the day or we just lounge around in bed. If we're active, if we go for a run, we borrow energy from other budgets. And so this explains mm. why exercise is so good for us. Because when we sit at our desk all day, we have to spend our calorific 
total on inflammation, on anxiety. Oh, um, interesting. On, on, on these things that are very harmful to us. When we go for a run, part of the reason the run is good is it damps down our inflammation, it steals energy from our anxiety budget, from our inflammation budget, and also our reproductive hormonal budget. So um, we run much higher levels of reproductive hormones like uh, testosterone and estrogen in the States and the UK than they do in communities where people are more active. And that's not good for you and I to have very high testosterone levels isn't healthy for us, it's probably carcinogenic. So. This is science backed up by studies going back to the 90s that have done really, really well. And it's also backed up by the fact that uh, when you make people exercise, they don't lose any weight. It's, it's, this is yeah. it's very, wow. very well accepted that exercise does really not help people lose weight. It's very good for you, but it doesn't. So the, yes. the final yeah. part of the puzzle was to go, but what about all these studies that show that people who do exercise live at lower weights? Well, all of the, the epidemiological studies have done very bad controls for the fact that if you're big, you tend not to be able to move as much. But more than that, they were all funded by the Coca-Cola company. So I've tried not to use brand names, but this has been very well reported in the New York Times. It's been, um, some colleagues of mine did a network analysis and Coke very aggressively funded a huge amount of science promoting this idea that if you go for a run, you can burn off the energy. And that is simply untrue. So that was kind of the most intriguing bit of my book was to go as a physician, I had completely misunderstood my own body. And part of the way that I understood my body was the way that Coke wanted me to understand it. Would you like to access a summary of a groundbreaking new book, every single weekday created by the authors themselves in 12 minutes of audio or four minutes of text? How about beautiful video and audio e-courses? Did I mention ad-free versions of this podcast? You're probably thinking, don't tease me, Rufus. Such a thing could not possibly exist. Well, I am not teasing, folks. You can find all those things and more in the next big idea app. Just go to your app store. You can do this right now. Just pause this recording, click on the app store and search for next big idea. If you enjoy this podcast, you will love the app. Join our community and you'll discover a bunch of bonuses. Listen to this podcast 24 hours before the general public. Enjoy in-depth e-courses based on the most game-changing books of the year. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the next big idea app right now. So the problem, as we've established, isn't that sugar, fat, and salt are inherently bad for us. It's that our consumption of ultra-processed foods has gotten out of hand. Okay, but how do we solve that problem? How do we fix the food system collectively at scale? Part of it is going to require regulation. And the first thing I would start to regulate is uh, the financial conflicts of interest between doctors and scientists and policymakers and the food industry. If you fix that, most of the rest of it falls into line because you remove the, the disinformation. So that has to be a cultural change. People have to realize that many of the people telling them about food, nutrition, and health are just paid by the the food industry, many of the charities that uh, help make policy, certainly in the UK and definitely in the US, are funded by the food industry. So the cutting off those ties, that's what we did with tobacco, is we made the money dirty. And it meant that all the scientists who were doing research and all the doctors who were doing ads saying that 
it was, you know, we needed to do more work and sowing doubt, being merchants of doubt. It sort of strangled all of that. And that allowed the truth to surface. So that's kind of the first thing. The, the second thing is we need to label the food appropriately. So I'm not someone who believes in bans. I, I like having junk food available in the world. I think people should be able to eat what they want. I want increased choice and freedom. But limiting marketing and labeling foods are really good ways of increasing choice and freedom. So we should not be able to advertise any ultra-processed products to children with cartoon characters. I would, I'm afraid I would take all the cartoon characters off the cereal packs. In South Central America, in Mexico, they've done these great studies where they've labeled ultra-processed food with black hexagons. This is now policy in Colombia, in Mexico. They've taken the cartoon characters off. And children ask their parents not to buy the food. These food companies are funding most of the major charities that advise the government on food policy. They're, you know, sending ships up, uh, you know, into remote corners of, of, of the world to spread ultra-processed food to communities that don't have the, the medical capabilities that they need to treat the resulting problems that ensue. And yet, you say at one point that you don't really blame the food companies. They aren't really the bad guys. So someone at BlackRock, uh, she said to me, I was, I was complaining about Danone. And she said, you know that Danone are not in control of their business model. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? She went, we own, I mean, I, I don't want to be too specific here, but it, you yeah. know, for no. Danone, you can substitute any of the major food companies, you know, yeah. Pepsi Lay, Mondelez, Coke, uh, Nestle, any of them. BlackRock own two to 8% of all of them. And so do Vanguard and so do Jupiter and UBS, these big institutional investors. And so if Danon stopped making money uh, for the, you know, the pensions that BlackRock holds, the, the 6% that's in them, BlackRock will uh, either take their money out of Danon or just be activist investors and say, we want you to um, uh, start making us more money, please, and sell more delicious food to more people. And this happened at Danon with Emmanuel Faber, who tried very hard to turn Danon into a social enterprise um, and was fired by uh, Bluebell Capital, who are activist investors. So the food companies, more and more, as I wrote the book and I became more economically literate and I spoke to people within the companies who were explaining how they work, the extent to which the companies have to deliver financial growth every single quarter is just unbelievable. I mean, if they don't do that, everyone gets fired. And everyone from the guy selling the granola bars into the shop, the, the, the literally yep. the sales rep through to the lab team, through to the board and the chief executive, everyone has to be committed to that project. So yep. you can scream about the food companies all you want, but in private, many of them said to me, we would love to stop selling all this crap, but until the playing field is leveled, there's no point in us doing it right. because we'll just right. be trampled on. Right. Right. And so maybe they'd actually like regulation. I mean, there's there, there's a they larger... Danon in the UK have come out and said, we would like more regulation. Tesco have said this. I mean, you know, when when these wow. huge... I mean, the government, in our, our case, our government is so like touch with the regulation that the, the food companies are sort of embarrassed about what they're forced to do. And it's a PR victory for companies who are fundamentally still making a lot of money driving diet-related disease, for them to be able to say, oh, you know, we'd like more regulation. You know, it's it's completely yeah. upside yeah. down. Interesting, interesting. And if, you're, if your listeners, I don't know your demographic, but yeah. if your listeners are small government people, my argument to them would be, 
you know, you can be governed by transnational corporations over whom you have no elected, you know, you have no ability to remove them, or yeah. you can have, you can vote for a government to tightly regulate these corporations, but you're, you're going to be governed by, you know, one or the other. So you might as well have a big government protecting you from big companies rather than big companies exploiting you and, and demanding ever smaller government. That, that would be my argument. No, I mean, there's a broad problem in my mind that the modern corporation is effectively a sociopath that <laughs> that, yeah. that has has no incentive other than increasing returns, which is just, I mean, if, if, if we ever encountered a human being who operated this way, we would consider their behavior to be unacceptable, but somehow we think it's okay for corporations. That that's a That's a larger macro problem, but I think your point is a good one, which is, hey, look, that fundamental dynamic of what uh, of how these food companies operate and uh, what their incentives are is not going to change in the near term. But the failure of government and doctors and scientists who act as regulators and the charities who take money from these food companies to launder their reputations, those people really should be able to affect the changes that we need to improve our whole food system. Industry is incredibly adaptable. When you put regulations in their way, they're phenomenal at continuing to make money. We've seen it in pharmaceuticals, amazing. When we started tightly regulating pharma in the early 2000s, they just started making more money than ever and we got better drugs. So the food companies will be able to respond to public demand. If the public say, we want delicious, incredible fruit and vegetables, the food companies will supply it. And we're seeing this in the UK at the moment. We've had a big push on fruit and veg and our produce is now unbelievable. If you go into the supermarket yeah. I'm currently sitting outside in my car, you know, there are 12 different kinds of tomatoes, nine different types of orange. They've got these, all these heirloom apples. Now they're very expensive, but there is public appetite. So yep. I'm optimistic, yep. but poor people are going to have to get angry. I mean, the, the, there is a real stress for me that everything I say risks increasing stigma for people who are already horribly stigmatized in, in all kinds of ways. And uh, they are the people who are forced to eat this food because nothing else is available or affordable to them. And, and I have a real discomfort in saying this food is harming you when for many people it's their only option. And this is personal for you, isn't it, Chris? Because your brother had a real struggle with uh, his diet and his health, which and, and your relationship with him and attempts to coach him may have, for a period of time, had the opposite of the effect that you wanted. Do you, you want to share that story? I mean, I, my brother moved to the States. He moved to Boston to do a, a, a degree and um, he had an, a, a kid unexpectedly with, with someone he didn't know that well. And Julian's now a very close part of our family and, and, and so is his mum. But it was very stressful that year for Zand and he lived above Bartley's Burgers and he just piled on the weight. He put on almost 60 pounds. So I nagged him for a decade. And there was a, I think one of the most powerful things in the book was we went and saw a psychotherapist together who said, you know, you nagging Zahn means it's your problem. And for Zahn to lose weight, he will have to lose an argument with you because he'll be doing it for you. And so it wasn't till I sort of let it go and stopped badgering him and, and allowed him to seize the problem uh, that he could he could grasp it, and everything about our relationship changed. So, if anyone listening is in, they're either being nagged or they are nagging. I promise you, the person you're nagging knows their weight, and you are only making it worse. And we have loads of data. So, I, I hope the book makes an argument for reducing 
the stigma for people who live with excess weight and and kind of will will stop some nagging. But then once it was no longer my problem, and once Zand, I then put Zand on this high ultra processed diet and made him speak to some of my colleagues who work in this area. He had to call Fernanda in Brazil. And she said, look, this is going to shrink your genitals, shrink your face, um, inflame your gut. Let me tell you how it all works. And then Zand at the end of that phone call basically has never eaten UPF since. And he's lost what he, same thing happened to him as happened in the, in the clinical study. Zand just lost all the weight. He didn't go on a weight loss program. He just stopped eating ultra processed food and the weight fell off. And he's now five kilos lighter than me. Not that we should celebrate that. Like, just to be clear, he doesn't look better. I don't love him anymore, but he feels better in himself, and he he does have a lower risk of of other problems as a result. So, I'm I'm, ne- I'm never I never want to celebrate weight loss. I I don't think anyone should be a particular weight, but there is evidence that living at a lower weight obviously reduces some health risks. One part of the process, I mean, clearly shaming and nagging is not effective. But what did work, it sounded like for Zand and uh, for you and perhaps others, is this immersion aversion approach of saying, you know what, I'd like you to do nothing but eat ultra processed food for a month or whatever the period is. And while you're eating it, I want you to read ultra processed people, learn about how this food that you're eating is affecting you. And by the end of that process, you may be so disgusted with this food that you're eating that you'll be cured of it. And that that, that seems to have so, worked so, for Zand, right? It did work for Zand. It's worked for a lot of other people. And I wrote the book very deliberately using this psychological tool. So there's a very famous book called The Easy Way to Quit Smoking by a guy called Alan Carr. It's recommended by the World Health Organization. There are loads of studies. It's one of the most effective ways to quit smoking. And the it's, it's quite a boring book to read if you're not a smoker, but I, I read it before I wrote mine. The principle is you just keep smoking, like smoke as much as you want, just read the book and don't try and quit and see what happens. And it works incredibly well because it takes the forbidden fruit aspect of yep. these products away and it allows you to make a choice. As, as long as a book is saying, you should do this, then it's the author's, you're doing it to impress the author, you're doing it for some third party. The way we change in life is we make decisions that we own and we truly own them. We're not doing them because our mom or our brother or our wife or husband is telling us to do something. I used to smoke cigarettes and Mm. I remember having this experience of getting halfway through a cigarette and finding it disgusting and saying, Rufus, you have to finish the cigarette. You must finish oh, really? it. And just and right. And I I mean I I just sort of alighted upon this as an approach that I'm going to force myself. And that got that got me to stop because I because those final several drags after I had found the cigarette to be disgusting were so revolting. Right. That it, and and I think that we can do this, we can do this with ultra processed food if we realize as we're eating it that you know what? It all kind of tastes the same. Uh, it, it contains these ingredients that are doing all these awful things to your gut and your mood and your long-term health. That combination seems seems to be highly effective. I mean, that I love that idea that it all tastes the same because there was a moment I was eating. It was a cho- one of those chocolate microwavable desserts with a kind of liquid core. It's like a volcano thing. I was eating it and I was like, this just somehow is reminding me of the pizza I just ate. I looked at the list of ingredients and 
the basic formulation of the ratios of carbs and fat and salt and sugar and protein is the same across all of it. It's all incredibly salty and incredibly sweet. So the, the savory food has masses of sugar in it and the sweet food has masses of salt in it. So like the thing that amazed me most was the breakfast cereals generally per 100 grams have more salt than a microwavable pizza or lasagna, sometimes double the amount of salt. And often the, wow. you know, the savory food will have exactly the same amount of sugar as the cakey stuff. You know, you'd be eating a, a Chinese microwavable meal and it will have more sugar per 100 grams than the, the cake you're about to eat for pudding. So there is a, there is a and, and they're all made of, um, you know, rice, wheat, soy, corn, powders, grains mixed together with, you know, the same set of fats, the sunflower and the palm and the, and the, and the canola, um, and then protein extracts or recovered meat, you know, it's all, it, the similarity, no matter what you're eating is, is the same. So there's this, there are hundreds of thousands of products, but they're all made from the same 25 ingredients. The last thing I want to touch on is just this question of how we address this problem for poor communities. And, and, and as you say, both poor communities in the Western world and all over the world, because it's, it's as you pointed out, wealthy people are starting to solve this problem, right? People who have the, the good fortune of having a lot of, a lot of resources are, there, have, there has been change in these communities. They have the time and the resources to, to go to Whole Foods or yeah, you know, can nice, can nice markets. Say, yeah. Like wow. the food industry say, oh, but people want this food. What's very clear is when people have the resources to mm -hmm. not eat this mm -hmm. food, they largely don't. If we look at how, you know, advantaged, privileged people, how our celebrities eat, how doctors Yes, sure, eat. sure. Yeah. I mean, we still eat quite a lot of it, but we, you know, we do also have a preference for real food. It's what people want to eat. So I don't accept this food as enjoyable. But yes, you, you, so yeah, you're completely right. When people- That's, that's a great, yeah. that's a great point. And, and I've observed in my community that all of the parents that I know uh, living in New York City and it's an educated collection of people, People eat very healthy food, but they're right. often feeding their children a lot of crap. Yeah. I'm one of your middle class right, you know, right, parents. Right, right, exactly. You are. I, like, but the kids, God, it's like I, you, time, the energy, the effort to get them to eat the bloody bit of red pepper that I've hidden in the omelet. You know, it's just much they, the beans and the fish fingers they don't complain about. So, right, right. But when, when you look at impoverished communities in, in the US, for example, school lunches are atrocious. At some schools, I've read yeah. seventy eight percent of the calories come from come from ultra processed foods. I mean, seventy eight percent. So we're hooking. We're. I mean, our school system is hooking children on this at a very young age. I mean, obviously, if 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 every if we can give everyone money uh, to to make uh, so they have more options and more Look, choices I mean, and solve the food desert, that's great. But that's that that that's a much larger <laughs> larger problem but to solve. Is, so how it's to, important to articulate that, Rufus, exactly as you say. Yeah. The number one thing is if you fixed poverty, which I believe is a political choice. Poverty is not inevitable. There is enough money for everyone. We can have rich people and no poor people. Um, if you fix poverty, most uh, we know about 60% of obesity would more or less disappear. There are lots of ways of demonstrating that. So 
this is a quite a powerful argument for social justice. But but yeah, while we probably will take another couple of years to fix poverty, in the meantime, there are some other things we also need to, to do. Yeah. Yes, we had we had a guy named Matthew Desmond on the show who has a campaign to abolish poverty, who makes precisely this argument that it is within our means, and certainly in wealth in wealthy Western countries, to to abolish poverty. And a consequence of this is it would be better nutrition. But are, are there other measures we can take? I, I, I guess I guess the kind of the kind of uh, regulatory changes, changes in legislation would uh, would benefit everyone. Yeah, you ban the marketing, you label the food, you change the culture of conflicts of interest, you change institutional food. So if nothing else, if prisons, hospitals and schools and the military, but if those institutions started serving real food, we would really see a transformation in all kinds of ways. I mean, hospitals, patients, we know patients get discharged earlier. Prisons, you get better behavior. School, you get better behavior. And it's cheap. In the end, the pandemic of diet-related disease is going to cripple our Western economy. So it, it, I, I never like making the economic argument because I think the moral argument is so much more powerful, but the poverty that leads to bad diet is incredibly expensive for people who pay tax. If you want to pay less tax, make sure your poor people aren't poor and that they have access to really good food and uh, that they're not aggressively marketed cigarettes. And, you know, you will find that you pay a lot less tax and that we've got buckets of data on that. Yeah. Well, and and we need to one by one discuss people with uh, <laughs> a deeper understanding of the food they're eating. You said that the the mission of your book, or one of them, is to disgust readers, hopefully without stigma. You succeeded in disgusting this reader. Uh, and as soon as I finish this can of Pringles, which is already open, so I, I feel like I have to finish it, um, I, 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 I'm going to do all I can to uh, to, to avoid ultra-processed foods. Thank you, Chris, for, for this book, and thank you for taking time to, to be with us today. Rufus, it's such a pleasure. I had such an interesting conversation. I've done a lot of these interviews, and that was that was just one of the best. So thanks very much. That was Chris Van Tulliken, author of Ultra Processed People, the science behind food that isn't food. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like the conversation I had with Dr. Tim Spector about his book, Food for Life. You can find it by scrolling back through the feed. The episode is titled Diet, the New Science of Healthy Eating. There's also a link in our episode notes. If you would like to discuss this episode and share your approach to your diet and nutrition, follow me, Rufus Griscom, on LinkedIn. There you will find my posts about each episode and a discussion in the comments below. If you want to enjoy some superfood for your brain, head on over to your app store and check out the Next Big Idea app. It's loaded with author-read book summaries, beautiful audio and video e-courses, invitations to exclusive events, and more. Getting smarter has never been so easy. Download the Next Big Idea app today. By the way, the story of Celine Da Silva that I told at the top comes from an incredible New York Times story by Andrew Jacobs and Matt Richtel. It's called How Big Business Got Brazil Hooked on Junk Food. Today's show was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Sound designed by Mike Toda. The Next Big Idea is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.